ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is the place where I invite you every every time that we gather together to listen in on conversations that I have with thinkers and leaders about a whole series of uh, different uh, topics. And uh, over on the other podcast, the Russell Moore podcast, I answer your ethical questions, moral questions, and we do Bible study and look at uh, music through the prism of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the cross and the jukebox. But here on Signposts, we look for those pointers toward grace, what Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. And today I want to talk about a relatively new book that many of you, I know, have been uh, reading and uh, and benefiting from and asking about, and I have as well. And so I'm looking forward to that conversation. And one of the things that I happened, I happened to think about this book uh, the other day when I was listening to the podcast, The Office Ladies, with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey going through episodes of uh, the sitcom The Office. And one of them just happened to say, I think it was Jenna Fisher, that she knew that her now husband, that she was going to marry him when she bought a grill and he came in and helped her deconstruct the box and get the box out to the road. And she said, that's when I knew this is the man for me. And I couldn't help but think, you know, there was a time when I probably would have thought that that was very unromantic and that it uh, it might have seemed kind of transactional and utilitarian. She's really looking for a handyman, not for a husband. But now I think, no, I get exactly what she's saying. She's saying that that act showed her something about who he was, uh, about what kind of a thoughtful, considerate, other-directed kind of man he would be. And I think that all of us, uh, maybe not in a marriage situation or a romantic situation, we've all had that experience where you can see and discern who someone is, not just what they do, but who they are. 
And that's what the book we're going to be talking about today, Gentle and Lowly, is about. It's written by Dane Ortland, who is the senior pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church in the Chicago area of Illinois. And it's about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Dane Ortland, thank you for being on Signpost today. What a pleasure, Dr. Moore. Thank you. I can remember really well. It's odd how we often can't remember specific things in sermons that have affected us. They shape us and form us, but we don't. We, we can't think of exactly when and how. But there are a few things that I can remember exactly where I was sitting when I heard certain things. And one of those things was when your dad was preaching several years ago, and he said something along the lines of this. Uh, he said, when you Look back and think of those times when you feel as though you have most failed Christ, when you're the most alone, and realize that those are the times when he's closest to you and holding you the closest. And it just struck me. I think of that all the time, and I thought of it quite a bit as I was reading uh, this book about the way that Jesus uh, approaches people as sinners and in uh, suffering. And I, I really love the way that you you sort of go step by step, maybe starting with the compassion uh, of Jesus and how Jesus is compassionate for us. I suppose the, the first thing that I would like to ask is, uh, what, what really prompted you to start thinking about this question? Mm, thank you. I, what prompted me, Dr. Moore, is I have spent most of my life, and I've, I've been a believer most of my life, but I've spent most of that life not believing what my dad said in that <laughs> sermon, which I deeply have come to believe. And actually, it makes being a disciple of Christ enjoyable and sustainable. And it was, uh, I mean, what, what was it? It's just been my own ongoing sin, shame, guilt, anguish, stupidity. Uh, and then uh, being confronted with Thomas Goodwin telling me in black and white in his little book on the heart of Christ based on Hebrews 4.15 that he wrote 350 years ago with this reality that actually, Dane, for Jesus Christ to put his arm around you and walk you through this you know, Edwards called it this wide wilderness of a world, and for him to love you most strongly, for his heart to be drawn out to you most strongly when you are at your worst, that's not a concession of Jesus's. That's not a concession. That's what he most loves to do. And for Thomas Goodwin, not a theological liberal, for one of the Puritans who helped put together the great confessions of the past, to make that case from Scripture— that did what the office ladies were talking about with that grill for my view of Jesus. That deconstructed it and began to reconstruct it. Hmm. When, when you're talking about Jesus as compassionate, uh, one of the things that I can't help but think about is how we live in a time where compassion is often framed as weakness. Hmm. Uh, and I will even hear, I, I have heard uh, people who are professing Christians who are making fun of uh, the, the weakness of turning the other cheek, for instance, this sort of language. And I think to myself, don't you realize that th these are direct words from Jesus? And the idea often of being compassionate is seen as being 
weak and and just not being tough enough. Uh, how, how does our view of compassion need to change? Mm. Only only a perfectly secure and comfortable in his own skin and safe and loved person can show compassion to the degree that we are uh, actually, I, I can't, if I can't show compassion to others, that's because I am not okay myself. I am not uh, comfortable in the gospel. I don't think I'm really uh, justified. Jesus went around this world because he's the one, he was the perfect human. So he had the strength, he had the ability, the overflow of his heart was able to be compassionate. He wasn't going around the world needing to ping off of other people to get his own identity built up. He was perfectly comfortable with his own skin, so he was able to be compassionate. So I strongly agree, compassion is the overflow of inner strength and settledness about your own inner state. Well, I like the way that you connect uh, compassion and solidarity, the way that Jesus mm. is, he's compassionate toward us, but he's also here mm. with us. And as I was reading your your chapter on solidarity, I, I happened to think about uh, a friend of mine, also a pastor, who was talking one time about parenting. And he said, don't ever say to your child, I cannot believe that you would do this. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and he said, because <laughs> if, you, if you say this, then, then what you're doing is to say, I really didn't expect that you would be a, a full sinner in this way. And that's, that's not the framework that you should have. You're presenting this picture of Jesus who is not shocked at all uh, by what's going on in people's lives. And again, I know that's something that many of us know at the cognitive level, but I don't think we know it deeper down uh, at the heart level. I think we do think that Jesus is shocked uh, by the situations that we find our, ourselves in. I wonder if, if you could apply what, what it is that you're telling us about Jesus to maybe a mom who looks around and she sees the fact that she's her, her drug use uh, over the years has just wrecked her kids' lives. Uh, they're, they're in foster care. She's wrecked her marriage. She's wrecked her life. And she's looking back on all of that, and she says, I can't go back and change any of that. But here I am as that kind of a person. How does Jesus see her? Oh, wow. That's where the rubber meets the road. And actually, if we can't answer that question out of these theological reflections that we make on the heart of Christ, Dr. Moore, then who cares? That's the whole point. And the answer is God's and Christ's heart is drawn out to that woman, not once she figures out how to work her way out of that, not once she gets her kids now straightened out again, not once she gets her life back on the rails. His, as she looks to him, as she simply collapses, that's one of my favorite verbs. As she, because because you don't need any strength <laughs> or energy to collapse; you just melt down. As she collapses into his arms, right then he is the kind of God and the kind of Christ. This is littered throughout the pages of the scripture, who loves nothing more than to turn the desert of her life into a flourishing garden, to turn that that um, mountain into a highway. I mean, Isaiah is filled with this kind of language. He's the God who redeems that and who loves 
turning into beauty that shame. So this is what he does. We don't understand it all. We will not understand a lot of how he has redeemed the various parts of our lives until we're looking back from the shores of heaven, I'm sure. But um, what he is asking right now is that she not dwell on the past or be anxious about the future, but that she right now melt into his arms and, uh, and watch him work a new, beautiful portrait out of what time she has left on the earth. You know, I, I think can't help but think of the way that the Apostle Paul talks about these two errors that he seems to repeatedly knock down. Uh, the one that we can put God in our debt and we can work uh, in a way that we're right before God. The other, that there's no need for repentance, that because we're forgiven uh, at the cross, that means that we sin all the more that grace may abound. It seems to me that often we get these messed up views of Jesus because we're trying to avoid one of those two errors uh, when they're both dangerous. How do we get to a place where we don't either uh, start thinking, I have to clean myself up and get myself together before Jesus will love me, or, well, Jesus loves me, therefore it doesn't matter what I'm doing uh, with my sexual life or with my marriage or whatever? Mm -hmm. That's a profound question, and I, and I strongly agree, Dr. Moore, with the way that you framed it. And I think the problem that we can get into is we might view legalism on the one hand as being one problem and lawlessness as another problem on the other hand. And we might say, oh, I think I'm veering too much in one direction. I need to turn around and, and work more towards the other problem when the answer is no. Um, both actually, both legalism and lawlessness both arise out of the same root problem. Namely, we don't see the gracious heart of God and heart of Christ. Both misconstrue who God is. Legalism thinks I need to do more to, um, to appease him. Lawlessness or antinomianism that I can, I can never appease him and who cares if I'm going to live any old way, but actually both have the same view of God. <laughs> mm. Both are thinking that he is ultimately not out for their good and he is uh, just someone who has to be obeyed for obedience's sake and he's just a judge with a powdered wig and, and so on. So the answer is not to split the difference between those two errors on the right hand and on the left, but to be on another third way, another plane entirely where we... Uh, uh, we see actually not just what God requires of us, but who he most deeply is. In fact, it's for us to treat God as a person in a personal way and not as a force or a platonic ideal or anything like that. So those are some reflections anyway. I uh, was talking one time with a worship leader uh, or someone who had been a worship leader. And one of the things that he would do is to lead worship at youth camps and events like that. And he was saying that at that time in his life, he was addicted to pornography and that what he would always say to himself would be, well, I'm not going to view pornography the week before this big event because I really need the anointing of God uh, on me. And then he would go back to this. And as he was saying this to me, I realized, you know, I have different problems than he uh, has or had. But the mentality is the same, and, and I think many people do, which is to say, uh, God is happy with you and pleased with you 
uh, when you're doing well, and God really is pulling himself away from you when you're disobedient in a way that, I mean, we know that that's not the case, again, cognitively, but Mm-hmm. It can sure show up <laughs> at, at, at the heart level, and you don't even realize that you're doing it. How do you work yourself out of that sort of transactional approach to God? Mm. That is the question, and perhaps one way to answer it is we can't. Therefore, God sends pain, and He forces us out in in His gentle, fatherly way through the anguish of our lives into that. Because we cannot, we can't crowbar ourselves mentally into that. We just won't do it. We're too weird and fallen. It is way down deep inside of us to believe that in all kinds of subconscious subtle ways, we need to leverage our way um, into the smile of God. And I think what we're what we're doing there, uh, what that youth leader was doing, what I tend to do when I think of God this way, which is how I roll out of bed every morning naturally thinking, what we're doing is we're projecting onto God a bigger, nicer, smilier, more put together version of us. This is mm. how we treat other people. <laughs> so, of course, we think this is the only way we know how he would be towards us. So, the one way to understand the Christian life, our many decades of sanctification, is to let the Bible confront us and correct us and rebuke us and reteach us about who God actually is so that um, those, those false ways of relating to him can over time begin to fall away. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You talk about something that I I don't uh, think that we talk about very much right now. It's something that used to show up quite a bit in hymnody, uh, but it doesn't show up that much, I don't think, anymore, and that's the friendliness of Christ talking about how Jesus said, I, I have not called you servants, I have called you friends. And it's a, it's a magnificent part of this book. 
But as I was reading it, I wondered, do you suppose that one of the reasons that it's hard for us to understand that friendship with God through Christ is because of the friendlessness uh, that, that often is, is present. I mean, this, this is something I find myself dealing with with people, maybe especially in ministry, but I think even beyond that with, with most people, uh, as they get older, the fewer and fewer really close friends they have in their lives. They, they have more acquaintances and people that they can do business with or what, but not really friends. Do you think that that sort of isolation and loneliness can can distort the way that we see Jesus? Oh, big time. As we go through life, we experience more and more how normal and natural it is for our friends to let us down and for us to be disappointed and for us to disappoint them. We can get disenchanted. And what we just naturally do, we don't realize we're doing it, but we start to put up walls. We start to protect our heart. It's it's a defense mechanism and emotionally, psychologically. So we're we're doing this and we're gradually becoming more and more friendless. And I do agree, Dr. Moore, that we can there, thereby dilute and neglect this glorious, resplendent, beautiful category of Christ as our friend, which the scripture makes very clear, not only our Savior, but also our friend. And we most fundamentally need him as a Savior. But what if he also walks through life with us uh, shoulder to shoulder, and no matter how many times I let him down, he is never going to put up walls or withdraw or operate out of any defense mechanism toward me. Uh, that's an astonishing... Uh, just this morning, I was reading in Thomas Goodwin, he was preaching on Jude 2, may peace, love, and mercy be multiplied to you. <laughs> and he took that verb multiplied, and he just did a riff on it, and he talked about how we are constantly multiplying sins to Christ, and he multiplies love, mercy, and peace. We constantly multiply breaches in his friendship to us, but he keeps constantly multiplying, building bridges back over to us like, like this. And so the friendship of Christ is just a glorious comfort to us as we go through life. You, you talk about in the book, uh, you use this, uh, this line at one point where Jesus is saying to us, there is no termination date on my mercy for you. Now, this is an endless sort of mercy. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when I see people that I know sometimes close friends, who end up just wrecking their lives, maybe with alcohol, maybe with uh, drug addiction or porn addiction or whatever uh, the situation is, often, almost always, I will think, if, if we had known about this earlier, we could have uh, dealt with this in a way that would have spared needless pain. But often what happens is someone thinks, I can't get help for this because if I do, then I'm going to be on the outs. Uh, I'm going to lose my ministry or lose whatever. And so they think I'm just going to be able to continue to, to work on this internally by myself until it just grows and grows and grows and it becomes, it becomes a nightmare. How could we do a better job? of coming in and, and really saying to people, if you, if you don't have everything together, which is m most of us, uh, all of us maybe, uh, you can actually, here's an exit ramp that you can take 
where we'll work with you to approach God to fix this uh, rather than just having it hidden and, and being a time bomb. Wow. Well, if if our churches stepped into that, that would be revi- revival and renewal, a third great awakening. Uh, because what we're talking about is daring to believe the gospel that we say we believe, daring to believe it enough to to horizontally, relationally act accordingly. And it's really First John 1, 7, which, you know, my dad, whom you mentioned, he has really pressed this home to me. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, and in the context of First John 1, that doesn't mean if we walk purely and uprightly. What it means is if we walk in honesty and transparency. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then two things happen. Number one, we have fellowship with one another. And number two, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, which we know must mean we feel cleansed all over again. It doesn't mean that if we do this walking in the light, then therefore the gospel kicks in. And that fellowship with one another, we have fellowship with one another. These barriers and barricades between us come crashing down. When I'm sitting, uh, I'm thinking of a, a friend I have right now who is so honest with me. And when I sit with him and he says, hey, I just got to be honest, I'm really wrestling with X. I am immediately, all of the pressure goes out of the room. And now this is a brother I can be honest with. (laughs) And suddenly what is happening right there is we are flourishing under the gospel. We are having, as you say, that exit um, into real shalom and harmony and glory and beauty. We are strengthening each other instead of letting those sins stay inside in secret in the dark where they fester and grow. And uh, uh, so this is something that I need to grow in, and our churches need to to keep just joyfully, humbly, cheerfully stepping into. This book is, I suppose, if I had to, to boil the book down, say this is what it's about, it's talking about the heart of Jesus, who he actually is, to, to see him as someone who authentically really does love you and really does want to uh, be with you. I think one thing that keeps a lot of people from seeing that is disappointment with people that they have seen in their lives who were pastors or mentors or or maybe just national figures that they've seen involved in some sort of a double life and some sort of a scandal. And I was talking to someone earlier today about how many people that I deal with who have grown really cynical because they're just sort of waiting to see that whoever they trust is really a fraud. There's a lot of that right now. How how do we differentiate between those people who have disappointed us, maybe in Jesus' name and Jesus himself? Um, By remembering that every single Christian they come across is more deeply a fraud than they know. <laughs> that we are, um, you know, I think we we so often just, we differentiate between people, Christians, Christian leaders, pastors, famous preachers, writers, authors, and we say Jesus is up there, and then all these amazing Christians are just a half, half degree below him, and then there's other Christians who are way down here. No, uh, there is one utterly consistent person in the universe, Jesus Christ. There's one who will act in total non-hypocrisy his whole life long. Um, I am way more a fraud 
than anyone around me knows. Everyone has too high an opinion <laughs> of me. So the question is um, not how do we, the question is to funnel, the point is funnel all of our hope <laughs> into Jesus himself. We are so thankful for our teachers and leaders. We bless them. We receive them as gifts from above. And when we see someone like you or my dad who is doing well and who is going to, is crossing the, the fin- who's after over many decades is walking with the Lord and not torpedoing their lives. We praise God, but never do we begin to take a little bit of our trust and funnel it into them. We, we must just be resolute in fixing our gaze, as Hebrews 12 tells us, on Christ alone. I mean, even that comes right after Hebrews 11, this hall of fame of all these people. And it's like the writer wants to say, these men and women all walk by faith, but don't put your trust in them. Put your trust in this one. You know, I'm the, as Jimmy Buffett would say, the son of uh, the son of a son of a sailor. I'm the son of a son of a preacher. My dad was a pastor's kid, and really had a difficult time uh, with the church. He loved his dad, but he had seen some awful things uh, growing up in the church, and was someone who it was really difficult for him to even be involved uh, in church at all, all of his life. And I've seen that a lot. But when I look at you and the rest of your family, uh, I see a very different reality than the stereotypical pastor's kid. Now, I know your dad is, uh, and your mom are sinners and flawed and everything like we all are, but something has gone really right in the Ortland family. I feel as though I know your grandfather. Uh, even though I, I never met him because of the way that your your dad talks about him. Uh, what what would you say if, if you look at your parents and your upbringing? And I know you would say there are things that would should should have been different. I'm sure any of us would. But what did you learn from them about what it means to be a Christian and a dad and a leader? Hmm more than I could say in a couple of minutes, and doubtless more than I even know, Dr. Moore, but um, a couple of things do come to mind. One is my parents, my mom and my dad were always the same human beings inside the house and out, inside the church and out with believers, with unbelievers. There was a healthy consistency there as opposed to doing what so many of us, what I find myself tempted to do all the time, which is project a different Dane depending on whom I'm with. (laughs) They didn't do that, uh, number one. Number two, my mom and my dad are real Christians. And uh, I don't mean like regenerate versus unregenerate, something like that. But what they profess, it actually is flowing out through their real-time, moment-by-moment lives. So they're, they are Christians who, what they profess is actually coming out. It's, it's not, here's what I believe on paper, but then here's what is really animating me in life, my mutual funds, or what people think of me, or something else. The third thing is, there is a very ordinary, normal cheerfulness about their lives then, and I would say even more than ever now. So I never was given the impression that, Dane, yes, go through life, 
and layer on another duty on top of all your other duties, namely being a disciple of Christ. But rather, this is the way actually to experience life as solid, as radiant, as something that matters with eternal significance to go through life and to cheerfully, happily enjoy (laughs) the Lord and the good things of life. It doesn't mean being super spiritual or anything like that. We're going to enjoy this steak and so on. But to march through life, come what may, the waves of adversity, there's a, a dogged, resolute happiness in the Lord and in the life he's given me. And they really have continued to live that. And you can't really leave the house at 18 and not be affected by that. It seems to me, though, that there are some people who have had that kind of experience and they assume, well, my parents are just in a completely different category uh, that I can never reach. And so this is an extraordinary sort of Christian, but that's that's not who I am and that's not for me. There, there must have been some way of communicating, we're, we're sinners and, and we're in need of forgiveness. Uh, in an ongoing way for you to be able to see that you actually can follow the same Christ as your parents and grandparents did. Oh, exactly right. And um, uh, I have known my dad to be a uh, a man who can say, you know, guys, this, this element of uh, my past, I wish I had handled that differently. I'm sorry. As soon as someone says that, especially when it's your own parents, it decomplexifies the relationship. And you can simply and happily move forward because all pretense has now left the room. And uh, so I'm very thankful for that. Well, the book is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I commend it to you. It will really help you, not only in your own Christian life, but also in helping others who are around you. And one of the things I love about this book is I think there is a tendency to turn Jesus into a Pez dispenser. Uh, a Pez dispenser for the doctrine of atonement. He's there to deliver this abstract atonement to you, but he he he's just the delivery system for it. Or a Pez dispenser for principles of life, and he's just the way that you get there. Uh, and that really can happen no matter what your theological tribe might be. Uh, but this book really shows you Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. So, Dane Ortland, thank you for writing this book, and thank you for taking time to talk to me today. You are most welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you for the privilege of doing so. Thanks for listening today to Signpost. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen, and also look at the other uh, podcasts that we have as well. It helps if you leave a review. That helps people to, to find the program. And if you're listening on a smartphone, Tap the cover art and you'll find some show notes with some other resources for you, including a way that you can get a copy of this book, Gentle and Lowly. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.